All right, so here we are with the Good Lion Podcast, and I am here with my new friend Scott Curran. Is it Curran or Curran? Curran. Curran. Yes. Okay. It looks like Curran, but it is Curran. That's the problem when you're just Instagram fans or friends, <laughs> Instagram fan friends, and you haven't yeah. actually talked in real life. Yeah, Scott, you are a guy who you are a part of a church called Park Hill, right? Can you give us some background on who you are, what you're doing? Yeah, totally. So I'm involved with Park Hill Church. I'm the embedded church planter. I grew up in Orange County and had heard of Evan just kind of from a distance. And he was talking about planting a church in San Diego. Yes. Him and I connected and we decided to have me come down to San Diego and start helping with the startup of Park Hill. And through then, just God confirmed a calling to to continue to plant a church out of Park Hill. And so we want to see churches being going out through San Diego and Southern California in general. And so I just started to feel a call pretty strongly. And so now I'm the embedded church planter with kind of eyes out toward somewhere in San Diego or maybe Orange County, kind of depending specifically where the Lord calls us to start another church somewhere in that area. Awesome. I love that, man. That's so cool. So yeah, I I love Park Hill. Evan is a friend of mine. He was actually my youth pastor when I was in middle school. So I have followed his journey closely, and uh, I first uh, found out about you when you preached. You've, you've taught, like, how many times? Like, a few times? Two, three, four? Over yeah, Park yeah, Hill? a handful of times. Yeah. I heard you teach once, and I can't remember the topic or title of the sermon, but it was just, it was so good. It was so encouraging. I, I literally uh, threw the sermon into a transcription software, and I copy and pasted, like, a, a chunk of it that I thought was so good, and I sent it to my community group at my church, and everyone was super encouraged. So that was my first like, oh, Scott, Scott Curran, who is this guy? I want to, I want to hear what he has to say. And uh, oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I, I was blessed. And um, then, you know, followed you on Instagram. And occasionally you share stuff on your stories that I just think is super relevant to what we're going through. And uh, that's actually why this conversation happened. Uh, you were sharing some quotes from a book you were reading recently. And it just struck me as we need to talk about this stuff. The topic of today's message, message, this is not a sermon. <laughs> the topic of the podcast is basically the political divide in our country and how that's hurting the church. So I think to start out, I just want to bring up that, you know, I think our country, America has always been divided politically to some extent, but they say that that divide is getting worse every single year. And with every election cycle, it just gets deeper and deeper. And when the coronavirus outbreak started, I, I heard things along the lines of collectively, this is the hardest thing the world has gone through since World War II. Yeah. As far as like its impact on people's lives on a global scale. What do you think? Is that an overstatement or do you think that's accurate? I, I do think there is definitely merit to the fact that our society just hasn't gone through something at this mm. scale yeah. since World War II. I do think there are differences between right. nations fighting each other and <laughs> kind of us collectively fighting a, a virus, <laughs> something right. that is not human, but it definitely is, yeah, something that our world really hasn't experienced on this kind of global scale. You kind of have the, the SARS outbreak in like 2003, which mm -hmm. was really big in Asia, and you kind of have like glimmers of different little pandemics, but not quite to this kind of scale where we're seeing the numbers that we're seeing this early on. So it definitely is. People are right when they say it's an unprecedented time. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, every, every pastor 
begins the sermon with, in these unprecedented times, every commercial, yeah. in these unprecedented times. I'm yeah, so, we I'm, just don't have like language for it. So we're like, it's unprecedented. <laughs> I'm, I'm so sick of that word, but it's yeah. accurate. You know, my thought is, even though this is hard, or this was at least my thought, my initial thought, even though this is hard, I was thinking in my naivety that like, this is going to be something that's going to bring the church together. You know, Christians from all different thoughts and views and denominations and walks and political leanings. It's going to bring us all together and we're going to refocus on the mission of the gospel. We're going to refocus on centering ourselves on Jesus. We're going to push past our differences and hold fast to what we have in common. But yet every time I get on like Facebook or Instagram and I just start looking at what people are posting, I just start to become depressed because it's so not the case. It seems like we've somehow managed to divide even over something like this. And I mean, what what do you think? Have you found that? Is that your experience? Uh, are, you, are you feeling that at all? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely what I've been feeling is, I think uh, I agree the same kind of thing of wanting to, in these times, you're like, this is what the church is made for. Like, this is what we need to do uh, is come together yeah. and blow the world away with what's going like with what we're doing as a church globally. Yeah. And what I started to realize too, was that Myself and probably many of us can tend to maybe kind of idolize the the history of like the church in like in the past has done these like heroic mm. things together. Yeah. And then also just going back to what those histories actually entailed mm-hmm. and to realize that even in during like Civil War times, you have Christians on on the Union side and on the Confederate side, like punching mm. each other in Gosh, <laughs> in yeah. uh, courthouses and in the Senate and in yeah and in Congress, and uh, you even have in the councils as they're debating theology, very intense division. So it's kind of for me that's been sad and comforting at the same time to kind of know like even in these unprecedented times, we are in the company of people who also did not fully understand what it takes to to come together and unify um, under the gospel when we are yeah just being stressed by something that we've never experienced before. Mm. Yeah, I totally feel that. It it goes back to the word unprecedented. It's it's so strange and I feel like this is something that for me a lot of times in the church, you know, we both have pastoral backgrounds. It's like you've got these things that you preach on and it's kind of a high level theory of this is what it looks like to be united during a crisis. And then we actually experience it. And it's like, we see what's actually underneath the surface of our own hearts. You know, one of the things that I've noticed is the divide. It causes us, I feel like at least to kind of selectively speak out. A lot of people are speaking out about things, but I feel like there is a selectiveness in how we speak out. And a lot of times we're only really addressing issues that kind of fit the narrative of our side here's what I mean. If you're a Christian in uh, conservative circles, and for me, mm-hmm. that's that's where I grew up. I'm a part of the Calvary Chapel Church Network, which is uh, primarily, I would say, most people in it would identify as conservatives. And so I feel like if you're a conservative in this moment, the things that you're allowed to talk about is you're allowed to talk about like, the liberal media is bad. The If you have a governor who's liberal, you know, a Democrat to say, oh, they're mm-hmm. they're really bad. They're messing things up. But if, you, if, if you're a conservative and you have a question about maybe something the president is doing, or maybe you know, if you suggest considering people's health as a higher concern than the economy, even to just throw those ideas out there, many will get upset at you for speaking out on those things or even asking legitimate questions because it goes against the narrative. And it feels like it hurts 
your team, like the team you're supposed to be fighting for. At least that's kind of mm-hmm. how I was raised. It was like, this was the team I'm supposed to fight for. So don't ever swing for the other team. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, totally. I think what you're talking about where when you're preaching or even discussing through social media and stuff like that too, anyone who has an opinion on something that's going on today, it changes once you start looking at the numbers Mm -hmm. and you start seeing that these numbers are representing people Mm -hmm. and the body count keeps going up and people that you know are being affected. um, Mm -hmm. Even if they're not directly related to you, even just people that you know of that are being affected by this, whether it be physically they're getting sick or whether it be financially where they're losing their jobs, Mm. that makes it personal Mm. and very real. And when you don't know what to do, like I just sit there and I feel like I, I don't have any control over what's happening. I can't fix it. I can't do anything about it. And so I want to look for something or someone to, to blame or to at least feel like if I can, tell them they're doing something wrong. I can have like my small part in fixing this problem. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that's where it causes the divide is, is when I don't know what to do, I can't handle my anxiety. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to find someone to blame and it's going to be way easier to find someone to blame who's not in my own tribe. Um, right. <laughs> and I think, I think this is the difficult part, especially for America in general an author named Amy Chu, I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly. I apologize mm. if I'm not. <laughs> but she wrote this book called Political Tribes, and she talks about America being a super tribe where we are encompassed by a singular identity, but we're made up by many different tribes, uh, mm. whether it's ethnic, racial, sociopolitical, all mm-hmm. that stuff. But we do have this common identity. And so I think it's difficult when we're trying to find unity in this time. Uh, especially as a nation where, but then there's all these sub tribes that kind of exist in our one big tribe. And I think that causes a lot of division and the church. Usually we want the church to exist uh, above and over those kinds of tribes, but we tend to in times of stress and anxiety, go back to our tribal mindset and attack the people outside of our tribes yeah. I think that is kind of the big cause of where what we're seeing right now on social media and within like the public sphere. Yeah, the thing that I'm really seeing right now is basically you've got these two sides and in America, you know, there's it's 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 complex, but if you boil it down, it's the left and the right. And I just see these two sides screaming at one another and basically saying if you stop everything you're doing and everything you're thinking and you start doing everything I'm doing and think the way that I'm thinking about everything, then the problem will be solved. And both sides are doing that. And there's really not a lot of wiggle room or nuance to any of these discussions from what I'm seeing. And I feel like the selectiveness of kind of going back to that idea of there are certain things that tribes are allowed to talk about. I saw this a lot over the last couple of years in just examining Facebook conversations between Christians online. I've noticed that like it... If you are somebody who, again, you know, comes from kind of my tribe, conservative Christian, you know, that's, that's the tribe I've, I've grown up in and kind of, so that's, that's my context. That's the people I know the best. If you want to talk about abortion, you have an open door. Like that is something that it's almost like a duty. It's, it's, you need to talk about it. And so you get on, you know, social media and you kind of rail against the idea of abortion. But then for instance, the idea of racial injustice in America to, to speak up about that, it's almost like all of a sudden it, 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 the idea is that that's not what you're supposed to be talking about. This is, we're, we talk about abortion, we talk about these things. 
that's a topic for the other side. And and I feel like the other way around. Like I, I know I, I have friends who would consider themselves more progressive or liberal Christians, and so they're identified on the left. And I've noticed that they speak out about racial injustice all the time, which I think they should. I think that's good and right. But I actually know some who would agree with me on on my idea of abortion not being something that's in line with God's will. But there's a hesitancy to speak up about it because it's all about kind of operating within your tribe. You know, I feel like your, your pastor, Evan, really exposed to me the reality of how people punish each other for speaking up uh, about these things because— you know, he was my youth pastor. I was really blessed to and blessed and impressed to watch him speak out publicly against issues of like racial injustice. And I learned a lot about the things that he said because they challenged like my preconceived notions. Like I'm a white guy. I grew up in Vista, California. There, the population there is like sixty uh, percent white and like forty uh, percent Latino. And there's there's mm-hmm. like no black people in Vista. So I grew up at a private Christian school. I didn't have the framework to think about these issues. He started to speak up about it a lot and it challenged me a lot to really rethink things. But I just noticed like the minute he spoke up about it, people would just get angry. Like this is just an example. I pulled up a post of his and it's he lit all he did was literally just mention a guy named Dr. Cone, James Cone. All he did was he just said, this is a guy who's great. I like him a lot. He passed away. Check out his books. That's all he said. And the first comment was like, Stop with the black and white. Color has nothing to do with it. It it just it just went to this huge like tirade, and it. I just was reading it. And I was like, "What is this? It's insane to me that we can't even have a conversation with each other without things devolving into anger and tribalism." Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think similarly to what we're experiencing right now, it's something that, to whatever degree extreme or not extreme, just continues to happen when when the church becomes a place where you can't reach across the aisle or you mm. can't uh, ask questions where you can't yeah, question the status quo. You are therefore almost removing yourself and mm. y- you aren't doing it on purpose. Typically it's people kind of taking a step back from you and kind of isolating you from the tribe. And I think it's because the, the left right divide that our larger culture kind of puts as like, you have to be in the left, you have to be in the right. Yeah. And maybe you're on that spectrum closer to the center, but we're still framing it in a left-right divide. Right. Totally. And when the church buys into that, that's where, yeah, someone growing up in, in Vista or like where I was, I grew up in South Orange County, yeah. still a very conservative area, talking about something like race and racial reconciliation. Yeah, it's going to be a tough thing to talk about because it does great against people's uh, upbringing and something that's different. And when the church buys into that, then whether your church is a right-leaning conservative church or a left-leaning liberal church, you will find yourself kind of being removed from from that group. And it's it's a very sad thing when the church uh, buys into that narrative because it's something that Jesus never talked about. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I just, the tragic thing to me is I don't think it's right for political parties to claim ownership over real issues that affect real people. But when we boil it down to like, this is a conservative issue and this is a liberal issue, we're ignoring the people affected by those issues. And if we have this mentality where we're just so absorbed in one side and we're always swinging for this team or that team, it's going to cause us to really ignore the people in front of us because we're trying to defend the honor of our team. And we feel like if we give an inch to the other side in any way. It's like the whole 
you know, Western society is going to collapse, you know, <laughs> under the yeah. ideology of the other side. And I feel like both sides uh, feel that way. I've actually spent a good amount of time this week just for research purposes, really reaching out to my friends who I know are either very conservative or very liberal and just saying, hey, can you explain to me, like, what are your fears? What is causing you to be so frustrated right now? Like, I'm not here to debate you. I just want to hear straight from the source, you know, and it's been fascinating to see the fear on both sides that the other side is going to be the destruction of everything, you know? Mm -hmm. does, I mean, does that, does that resonate at all? Do you feel that? Totally. And I think, I think there's a helpfulness in, we have to be able just for language sake and to yeah. be able to have a conversation, you do have to put labels and terms on things just so you can actually right. have a conversation. And I think the, the biggest thing is when people's identities are found deeper into their left, right kind yeah. of identity is where I can't have a conversation with you. If, if you're, whether it's a political leaning or a moral or ethical leaning that you have is so embedded into your identity that anything that stands opposed to you or contrary to you is just going to be an explosion of, yeah. of whatever you've kept inside of yourself on both sides. And I think for Christians, the least interesting thing about us should be where we fall in that left-right divide. And I fully agree. I think, That's good. <laughs> yeah, I think once we can get the the... And it's hard, it's difficult because everybody has their life experience that leads them to whatever position that they, that they hold. Yeah. But to be able to remove ourselves a little bit from the emotional and visceral reactions that come from arguments on the left-right divide, yeah. the better as Christians we are to engage people and to have healthy, uplifting conversations that yeah. actually get things done. Yeah, absolutely. So for you personally, like as you're thinking through this and as you're dealing with people in your church who obviously probably hold conflicting views of one another, I'm sure that your church is not like a monolith of views. It's probably like, is it, is it diverse? Would you say? Yeah. The, in that the, way? Yeah. It's very interesting. San Diego, just as a city in general, is a very unique culture because you do have the background of military. Hmm. It's a very military heavy city. Right. And cause that's what it operated as for decades and decades. And then it started to become more of a traditional city that you'd see in like LA and stuff. Right. And now you also have Hillcrest. One of the neighborhoods there is a very, what you'd consider liberal left leaning, okay. huge on LGBTQ rights. Pride parades are very consistent there. Hmm. And so you have these two, what would you, what you typically would see as like a very, like right militaristic conservative culture mm -hmm. mixed in with a very left progressive culture. Mm. And so what it does is it provides this very unique situation, especially as a church, mm. all churches that operate inside of San Diego are, are kind of caught in that, in that spectrum mm. of thought and belief. And it's very interesting. So people who come to Park Hill and people who go to many churches in San Diego, yeah, there's a, there's a wide variety of whether it's, left-leaning Christians or right-leaning Christians that are kind of always interacting with each other. Yeah. I think something that is so powerful, and it's something I found both in your church, Park Hill, and in the church I currently attend, Frontline, Oklahoma City, in a world where either you have churches that are so politically on one side that anybody who attends who thinks differently would feel alienated and feel like they don't belong or churches that are just passive and they just 
don't even mention politics and you don't even know where the pastor, you know, leads or lands on anything. What I found in your church and my church is it's been a beautiful thing for me because it's a church that acknowledges these things that are going on in the world and society, but then it says our allegiance is found in Jesus alone. And there are people here that think differently, but we can love each other and serve each other. And and that's not what we're about. It's not about the left or right lens or path. It's about the kingdom lens and path. And so mm-hmm. I think I'd ask you, like, what's the biggest thing on your heart personally when it comes to division in this way, not just among people, but Christians? As somebody who pastors, what's what's the biggest desire of your heart to see? Yeah, I think in my mind, I've been, and a lot of my prayers and reading and research kind of have been going into this idea of politics in the, I've always been interested in politics from like a pretty young age. When I was a senior in high school, I wanted to get into politics and do like political science for my degree and everything. And so I was always fascinated with the political landscape of the U.S. And then starting to follow Jesus, I was, those things started to combine and I had to find out where did my beliefs line up with Jesus? Where weren't they lining up with Jesus? And so that was a fun challenge. And and what I started to learn was I kept hearing people saying like, oh, the church needs to be apolitical or like a lot of pastors being like, I'm apolitical and stuff like that. Yeah. And I totally get that sentiment of not wanting to buy into the left right divide that we typically see in our country. And, and I agree, I don't want to buy into that divide. Mm. But what I've come to find out is that the church and the kingdom of God is not apolitical. It's just counterpolitical. It is a political entity. It was called the assembly in, in Greek. It's the exact same word as the political assembly in Greece. Mm. Um, And so the new Testament authors know what they're doing when they're, when they're talking about the church as the assembly, it is creating its own politics. It's Mm. creating its own way of governing um, its people. And I think the beautiful thing is the vision in Revelation of the kingdoms all coming into the new heavens and the new earth, waving mm. their flags. There's no, it isn't a monolithic culture. It yeah. has uh, diverse people from all walks of life yes. coming in mm. under the rule of Jesus. And so my heart is to see how do we create that counter political uh, community that is expressing and celebrating the diverse cultures from all around the world, but still submitted to the way of Jesus. Yeah, no, that's really good. And that resonates with me. So like, I'm somebody who personally, the idea of being kind of apolitical is attractive to me in the sense of, I just hate the division and I hate the divide. Guys like Evan and and some of the other guys have been such a great influence on me in in this area. And I've been learning to like, let go of kind of those preconceived notions and let me give you kind of like a perspective and feel free to push back if you feel like that's okay. not going far enough. Here's, here's, here's one thing that I've taught some of my students in youth group and when I've taught at Bible college, just as we've talked through this issue, I totally agree. I think that the kingdom of God is political. It has its own politics. Jesus, when he gives the Sermon on the Mount, like it's not like, here's a collection of helpful uh, sayings by Jesus that'll make your life a little bit better. Like it's, <laughs> yeah. it's like, this is the kingdom manifesto for if you're living in Jesus's kingdom, this is what it looks like. You don't just not commit adultery. We're so hardcore that we don't even lust after women. Like that's just, you know, one example. Mm-hmm. So for, for me, it's all about the world kind of offers us different lenses to look at the world through. And in America, it really is hyperboiled down to either the left or right lens. And so for me, what it means to be somebody who is 
maybe not apolitical, but counterpolitical is if I see a homeless guy on the side of the road, if I'm looking at him from a right lens, a right wing lens, there's going to be a tendency to think, I don't want to help this guy. He got himself into this mess. It's his fault. He should have gotten a job. He shouldn't have gotten addicted to drugs. He just needs to pull himself up by his bootstraps and get back out there and just solve his problems. Or if I'm looking at him from like a left wing lens, and I might be horribly butchering this because this isn't the lens that I grew up from, but <laughs> I guess based on the stereotype of what I've been told by the, the people on the right, if I'm looking at him from a left lens, it's this guy is a product of a broken system and a broken society, and it's not his fault. And he, he we need to tax the rich and build this guy a mansion somewhere. That's mm-hmm. that's hyperbole. But like <laughs> to look at him through a kingdom lens to me is to look at him and say, this is a guy made in the image of God who deserves love and empathy. I'm going to go to the Jack in the Box, buy the church and buy him a sandwich. I'm going to sit down next to him and I'm going to ask him, what is your name? What is your story? How'd you end up on the streets? How can I pray for you? Can I tell you about Jesus? And that's that's where I'm going to start. Like That's the, the lens I'm going to start from. That's the worldview I'm going to start from. And then as the Holy Spirit guides me further, then I might go further from there in how I decide to help this person or even to try to tackle the systematic issues that might have led to these bigger problems. But it, it, to me, it just has to start from a kingdom lens. I think when I start from either a left or right lens, my attitude about the situation is going to be totally counterproductive to what God is actually trying to do in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really spot on. We And typically our initial reactions are not always the kingdom reaction. No, um, not at all. <laughs> I think it's usually what's been built over time. However, you were brought up. And I think, yeah, trying to, to stop ourselves from the typical reaction of, yeah, like where I would grow up, I, I'd probably, my initial reaction is the always like, well, if I give them this money, they're going to go and use it for drugs. They're going to go buy um, drugs. Wait, hold on yeah. really quick. When I was a youth pastor, I took a kid down to the Seven Eleven, and there was a homeless guy and he asked for money and I gave it to him. And I thought I was going to be a really good example of the kid. And then the kid was like, Hey, what are you going to, what are you going to buy? And he's like, Oh, I'm going to go buy some drugs. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> he was honest with, yeah, you. <laughs> he was honest, but it was not a good look for me as a youth pastor, but anyway, yeah. sorry, continue. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's typically, and, and stories like that will also help like reinforce the fear already, right. uh, what you already believe. And uh, yeah, looking at the way of Jesus is that he asked questions and mm. I don't think it was in a way that where I think if I were to ask questions sometimes, it would be that like, how can I get him to reveal what he's actually going to do or whatever situation I'm involved in? Like my questions are always like, how do I navigate this? How do I like uh, make sure that I can keep my own integrity intact? Mm. Whereas I think Jesus was, was asking questions to get to the center of what was going on. And so he knew how to address it properly. And Mm. he didn't assume things about, people like he didn't assume that the homeless person would go buy drugs. Obviously that's anachronistic because (laughs) it wasn't the same culture then, but Jesus does give us a template of how to have that kingdom lens when we interact with people. And it's always dealt with, I think we tend to keep the left right divide in our heads as we approach individuals. Mm. And I think that's a very dangerous game to play when you, when you approach people, I can think of on the very, what we consider like the conservative right wing, right wing Christian side of, of going and the, the parody of it would be like, ignore the social justice, just worry about saving souls, get them into heaven. So we're going to walk the streets and we're going to approach people about salvation. Right. And 
in my head, I didn't grow up exactly with that kind of background. Mm. And my head was always like, well, why are you assuming those people don't follow Jesus walking down the street? <laughs> and so I think in Jesus template, he, he goes up and he asks questions about like yeah. the, the son convulsing from a demon and he's asking questions, <laughs> the, the kids ravaging by uh, being possessed and Jesus asking questions about it. And you want Jesus to just act and do something. Right. Um, but he's asking questions to actually understand what's going on. He's patient and he's listening and then he addresses the problem. Hmm. That's really good. The place my mind goes with that is I feel like I want to try to learn how to strike the balance between when it comes to what Jesus did, it's like Jesus seems to have a ministry that is hyper-focused on the Great Commission, you know, making disciples, preaching the gospel. And it seems to be very relational. Um, like the place my mind goes to is Jesus is known in Israel during the time of his ministry as a friend of prostitutes and tax collectors. And I feel like from my conservative background, like the way you deal with a prostitution ring in town is like you systematically try to shut it down. Like you try to shut down the brothels and you say, this is a horrible thing for our community and this is going to destroy society and families. And so we need to fight and pass legislation that shuts down the work of these women prostituting themselves. But Jesus is known for personally connecting with them and having this friendship component that then leads them out of darkness into light. And so that, to me, I, I find that to be a really compelling model. Like I've been inspired to read stories of, you know, there's been groups of women that have gone into uh, strip clubs with the intent purpose of like going to the strippers and saying, hey, we are here to pray for you we've brought you home cooked meals. We're going to help you do your makeup. Like, and then through those relationships, the gospel is preached and then the women come out of it. And I feel like so often we're dealing with the problems in the world in such a zoomed out way. We're trying to, to deal with things from like a systematic level or a legislative level where we think we can just solve the problem by passing a law. But really to me, it seems quite often that God is more concerned with us individually as Christians trying to impact people directly. But then there's other times where I'm like, it feels like we do need to actually fight against things at a systematic level. So it's it's a hard balance to strike mm -hmm. for me. Yeah, and I think it, it definitely comes from Jesus and his early followers being a persecuted minority. And so the New Testament is written in a time where being a follower of Jesus is not the safest thing in the world to be doing. And now we exist in a culture where a form of Christianity is embedded into our own national identity. Mm. And to whatever degree that it actually is really Christian is, is definitely up for debate and people debate that continuously. Yeah. But there is a moral, ethical foundation of Judeo-Christianity. And mm. we can see it now with even just high level evangelicals being in Trump's circle. We mm. have people who are just nationally known by Christians and non-Christians in our country um, yeah. as mm -hmm. being the Jesus people. And I think that is something to reuse the word unprecedented in the way of <laughs> Jesus is having high, highly, highly uh, visible, influential people on a pretty mm -hmm. broad scale as Christians. And I think that is where when you are a persecuted minority, it's a little bit easier to be able to have a bad rap because everybody just doesn't like you when you're a persecuted minority. Right. Um, and, and so I think it's difficult when now you're in this place of power. Yeah. Um, and when you have that power, you, 
you want to keep that power and you want to keep that image and yeah. for good and bad reasons. And so it's hard for Christians at a high level when it, we're dealing with politics, wanting to legislate and the way that you legislate is going to affect how people view you and how people perceive the church too. And so people yes. even want yeah. to hold up their image of the church and their own personal identity. And that can actually sometimes hinder the work that Jesus wants to do in, in individuals. Hmm. That's really true. I, I want to I circle back from that to kind of this idea of going back to the divide, because I really truly believe that we see in the scripture precedent for what it looks like for people with radically different ideological and political views to come together under the banner of the kingdom. I'll just be honest, like in most of the circles that I grew up in, the idea of a Christian on the left was like considered impossible. Like just there's no way that could even be a thing. And I, I hear many people continuing to make that sentiment. Even just recently on Facebook, I saw somebody make that sentiment. And uh, have, you, have you heard that comparison between, uh, you know, Levi the tax collector and uh, Simon the zealot? Right. Mm-hmm. Have you, have you, yeah. It's one of yeah, my favorite yeah. comparisons because it's like, you know, I, I, I read somewhere that in Jesus's time, it wasn't two political parties. It was like, there was like 10 different political sects in Israel going on, mm-hmm. going on. And so you have Simon the Zealot, right? Who would be considered very right wing for his time. He is make Israel great again, fight the government, take out the Romans because they were, they were a minority, a persecuted minority at the time. They mm-hmm. were under captivity from the Romans. So the idea was like, let's take our country back. I'm willing to slit the throat of a Roman centurion if I have to. Like, I'm a revolutionary. I'm a patriot, you know. So it's this very kind of like God and country conservatism. Yeah. And then you have Levi the tax collector, who would be considered more like that liberal big government. He's supporting Rome. He's working for Rome against the interest of his own Jewish people. And so he'd be viewed by the other side as like, you know, very liberal. And yet Jesus calls both of these guys to follow him and to serve him. And he doesn't say, hey, Levi you need to be more right-wing. Or, hey, Simon, you need to be more left-leaning. He doesn't say that, he doesn't try to convince any of them that the political systems of their current day is right. He, he says, forget that stuff, blow it up. Let's talk about the kingdom of God, the new political system, the new political order. Leave those things behind and follow me. And those two guys seem to be able to put their differences aside and say, let's serve King Jesus together. And I'm sure that like their views didn't change overnight. Like I'm sure as they were traveling those three years with Jesus, it wasn't like they're, everything they believed about life just went out the window. I'm sure they clashed, but they were able to like set aside their differences and serve Jesus together. And that's just always been inspiring to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a good picture to lay out for kind of, I think I, I, we outlined that too, of the idea of the new heavens and the new earth Mm. being where the kingdoms of the world wave their banners as they enter in. And so there is this diversity. There is the left right divide that, that is not, no one on that divide is too far away from the the kingdom of God. Like Jesus can bring those people in and he's seeking out those people specifically. And yeah, and I think when we use that analogy, we can talk about, great, this is the ideal that people with differences and even very distinct and visceral differences can come together under Jesus. And the work of the church is now, how do we do that? Like, what is the practical way of doing that? Because we don't have you, see... Have you seen that? Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen Christians with like, in, in your context, pastoring, like Christians of radically different views, putting those things aside and saying, let's, let's honor each other and serve Jesus together. And we're going to have not like heated, violent debates with one another, but we're going to, ha- it's going to be an ongoing discussion. Like, have you, have you ever seen that? 
Yeah, I, I see it a lot in especially the people who are just coming out of college, I think, because you you're coming out of especially ever since probably around 2013, 2014, when the college campuses became this like hotbed of mm. social and political yes. uh, battle. And I think <laughs> people who went through college at that time kind of were just thrown into this kind of very heated and visceral yeah. debate. And I think a lot of those people who I'm talking with, especially at Park Hill Church, many of them are coming from different perspectives and also coming together to worship Jesus. And it's usually not clean. (laughs) I would probably tell people if they're longing for that to be ready for very even hurtful conversations and ugly conversations that happen. But ultimately seeing people, I think the biggest and most impactful thing for me watching these things happen and being a part of those conversations is people submitting back to Jesus and asking for forgiveness and kind Mm -hmm. of running through what Jesus tells his disciples to do is to seek forgiveness, to look for reconciliation between believers in the church and watching that happen is, is really beautiful to see people who aren't even necessarily changing their views for one another. Like typically you're going to usually just become more entrenched in your own ideas, but people laying down those things as identity markers and seeing them come to church, whether it's on Sunday or in their community groups and worshiping Jesus is a really beautiful thing. Yeah, no, that is so beautiful. And I I feel like if our mentality is my way of viewing the world, whether it's left or right, is the only good and right way to see the world. And so everybody else needs to get on board with me or I can't accept them or be their friend or fellowship with them. It's so divisive and it's so hurtful to kind of what Jesus is trying to accomplish in all of us. But I feel like if our identity is, yeah, I'm, I'm conservative or like, oh yeah, I'm liberal, but my identity is in Jesus. And these guys are my brothers in Christ. And they, they have different ideological views than me, but like our identity is Jesus. And my goal in life is not to become more conservative or more liberal. It's to become more like Jesus. And so really, if you're on the left, if you're truly following Jesus, there's probably going to be some things over time that he pulls you away from the left, or at least the popular idea of the left and what they're thinking, because you're realizing, okay, not everything the left says lines up perfectly with Jesus. And I'd say the same thing with the right. If you're the hardcore right wing, as you're following Jesus, you're going to start to notice there are certain things he says and does that doesn't fully line up with what all the pundits on the right wing are saying about everything. And so you're everyone's moving away, not to the center, but like, it's, it's something that's not even, it's not center, it's above. It's not left or mm-hmm. right, it's, it's higher. It's, it's this higher idea of the kingdom of God. And it's like, we're talking about it right now, but I feel like there's probably people listening to this where they're, they're like, this sounds insane. Like <laughs> to actually do this, to actually mm-hmm. be in fellowship with people who, because I know many people where just everyone in their church is just one way and there's this fear of the outside. There's this yeah. fear of anyone who thinks differently. And and even sometimes a hatred, if I'm honest, a hatred. And I, this isn't, I'm not just talking about, don't, if you're listening, I'm not just talking about people on the right where I came from. I, I know people on the left where there's hatred as well. And my thing is if we're called to preach the gospel, if we're called to make disciples, but we hate half of the population in, instinctively, how mm-hmm. are we going to reach them with Jesus if we are just going around muttering curses at them under our breath? Like, yeah. how can we do that? You know? Totally. And I think the, for where the rubber meets the road on this, I would say this begins with us as individuals being open and willing to hear other people. You don't need to 
be someone who doesn't take any convictions or doesn't have any beliefs on anything. That's just as bad <laughs> as being uh, yeah. so overly convinced of your position that everybody else is wrong. But being able to to sit down with someone and hear someone even, I think this is very, this should be very welcomed and open in the kingdom of God is, is to be able to hear someone disagree with you, even very strongly disagree with you and you to be able to openly receive that and continue a relationship with that people. Cause I have friends mm-hmm. who like something where I probably may not fit the mold, especially as someone who's, who enjoys politics and thinking about it and, and working through all that stuff. But I'm someone who doesn't vote and that causes on both left and right, it causes very strong feelings and typically of resentment of like, I'm, I'm not doing my patriotic duty. Right. Um, typically on the right, it's, you aren't patriotic enough. You, you are not exercising your civil duty as a citizen of these United States. Right. And for me, I think personally, that doesn't affect me all that much. Like I can kind of take that in stride and be like, oh yeah, like I've heard that I, before. I have a question about that just cause I'm, I'm curious. The people that you've talked to who are like, you have to vote, bro. If then you were to tell them, well, actually I'm going to vote. If I was going to vote, I would vote for the side that you're not going to vote for. Do you think they would still like demand that you vote or do you think they'd be like, oh wait, actually, no, it's better if you don't. Yeah. I think a lot of the people, at least that I'm involved with, a lot of my friends are just like vote. They, they, yeah, they wouldn't be, Hmm. they would then try very hard to convince you not to vote if you were going to vote for the other person. (laughs) Right. Uh, But yeah, typically it's, it's the, the patriotic duty is coming on the right side and that I, I usually can take in stride and I feel pretty good about it and it doesn't affect me all that much. Typically on the left, it's kind of this, you are um, now taking part in the oppression of underprivileged people who are being left out by our political system. And I'd say that one actually probably is a more effective argument uh, for me personally. And I actually, yeah, and I take Mm. that and I, and I have to think about that and pray through that. But being open in those conversations, I think is important and being able to accept someone's position as valid and that you are able to to think through it and accept it and process it and move on and continue a great relationship. Yeah. And I think the second side of that is it starts with us people in the church. And I think it also has to do with the leadership in the church too. Yeah. Um, because if, if you're on stage and you're not open uh, about differences in opinions and differences in views, whether it's theologically, politically, socially, yeah. people in your church are not going to feel welcome having yeah. like a dissenting opinion. Well, that's, that's, again, what I love about Park Hill, what I love about my church frontline. In fact, when, when I came to Oklahoma, you know, I was afraid just because it's the Bible Belt. And I just, I, I personally have been, one of, one of the most frustrating things for me is to see how politics has divided Christianity. And so I just was assuming that like most of the churches out here would be so politically divided. Mm-hmm. Um, I showed up at Frontline for a Sunday to check it out. And they were going through this series called uh, the uh, American Gods. And it was analyzing the idols that we as Americans hold dear, you know? So it was Mm. like the God of money, the God of sex. Week three was the God of politics. And to see that they were willing to call out flaws and fallacies on both sides, and they didn't do it in a way where they favored one side over the other. They were just like, man, these guys are messed up. These guys are messed up. Like, of course, everyone's going to vote like the way they're going to vote. But can we acknowledge that this is not the path? Like the, the right and the left are both pointing to what Mark Sayers calls, you know, the kingdom without the king. And mm-hmm. it's this idea of like either, you know, theocracy where it's like God, God is our king, but really it's not 
Jesus. It's this idea of what we think God is, or it's like, you know, liberal utopia where we can fix all the world's problems without involving Jesus and his rule and his morality and any of that stuff. So, you know, I totally resonate with that. But personally, like I resonate too with what you're saying about the whole voting thing. Cause for me, like in, in even just talking about this stuff, I've been told by even dear friends that I've been apathetic and irresponsible because I haven't picked a side that I'm going to publicly come out and say, this is my side and I support it. And I bash the other side and I challenge them. And it's kind of this idea of like, it's apathy and irresponsibility and slapping Jesus's name on it. And for me, it's not that I don't care about issues in our world. It's that oftentimes I feel like people are asking me a question and it's like a multiple choice. Like, do you pick A or B? And I'm like, well, actually I pick W, you know, (laughs) it's like, they're like, that doesn't work. And their, their brains explode. Like my views on many things are coming from the way I interpret scripture and the way I see the kingdom of God and the way of Jesus. And so my answers to questions don't often satisfy my liberal or conservative friends. It just makes them them frustrated. I, I can tell that that's something that you deal with as well. Yeah, totally. And I think it's really important too, because sometimes you do get this kind of anarchist sense of like, let's just blow up the whole system, the whole left, right thing, just is terrible and it's destroying our society. So we just need to get rid of it altogether. And that also can be very unhelpful towards the furthering of God's kingdom. I think, I think God's kingdom has worked through many cultures, many different political styles and, and implementations, whether it's been actual kingdoms and empires and democracies and all that Jesus way has kind of entered into every single political sphere that we can think of. And he's able to use those, And I think of just that quote, I can't remember who says it, but where it's something along the lines of democracy is the democracy is a terrible form of government, but it's better than all the rest. (laughs) Hmm. And and I think that's like a, a, a kind of cliche, funny way of understanding that, like even democracy, even the political sphere that we find ourselves in is flawed and it doesn't Hmm. actually solve the world's problems. But I think when we can see people on the right and people on the left not demonizing each other and saying yeah. we we have differences but we come together to to solve them is is a small step toward unity and i think that's jesus prayer of john 17 of the church being unified is kind of the embodiment of that where i can look at my friends who have liberal leanings and my friends who have conservative leanings and see them kind of come together and say like i think this and i think that we disagree and we love each other very yeah. deeply. I think that's kind of the seed of the unity that Jesus is talking about in John 17. Yeah, I mean, that, and that has to be what was going on in the early church, like, because it was this radical movement that brought, you know, the rich and the poor together at the same table and, you know, masters and slaves. And it's like, obviously, like, they all had probably very different ideological views of the way the world worked. And yet they're coming together, they're having communion. They're actually having real relationships with one another. And it's beyond just like showing up at the same church building and then leaving after the service is over. Like it was real friendships and connections that were happening. I think it all goes back to what you were talking about, the idea of allegiance. I mean, do you ever read any Brian Zond? Is it Zand or Zond? I've heard Zond. Yeah, I actually Uh haven't read any of his stuff. I see him on Twitter yeah. Uh, and, and watch his stuff on Twitter, but I haven't read any of his stuff. He's got some interesting stuff. I don't always agree with him. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But I've read a few of his books and I, I found this quote where he says, having pledged my allegiance to the lamb, I have no allegiance left over for elephants or donkeys. And I just thought that was so <laughs> good. 
And again, it's like you're not telling people don't vote. You're not telling people or, you know, like some people don't. But, you know, some people do. And that's okay. And it's this Mm -hmm. idea of you're not telling people don't participate in the system. But where are you finding your identity? I heard some friends of mine that are uh, pastors in Ireland talking about how, you know, they're, they're kind of looking at us in America and it's just like, it's so sad that it's so divisive. And they're like, every year we kind of just read through the issues and we vote for whatever party we think does the least amount of damage. But when we, we literally have friends where one person voted for the more right-wing party, one, vote, one person voted for the more left-wing party, but they're still doing ministry together and they're still loving one another. And it's like, that doesn't define who they are and their whole ideology and identity it, that's found in Jesus and everything else is just like, yeah, we care about the world. Yes, we're, we care about these big issue problems, but we, under, we also understand that we don't have all the answers. And at the end of the day, even if we all get what we want and we vote every single person that we want into office, there's still going to be problems in the world and it's still going to be broken. The only thing that can fix that is Jesus's return. And the only thing that can really make t- the difference right now in this present moment is the church being the church. And, and, and loving people and reaching out to people and self-sacrificially putting others first above themselves. Yeah, totally. It, it very much is an allegiance, allegiance thing. We, And I think a lot of churches, people definitely talk about churches being maybe one way, like right-leaning or left-leaning. And I think, in my experience at least, is that there are great diversities within every single church. And I think it's more of are these churches places that are open to that kind of discourse? And I think Mm -hmm. the churches that don't allow it, whether it's explicit or uh, implicit, I think that the beginning of it is all churches need to recognize that we have people who think differently than us, who come from different backgrounds than us and create open spaces for, if our allegiance is in Jesus, then we shouldn't be afraid of people that have different political leanings or ethical leanings And I think that is really a big starting point for any kind of church or even if it's a group of friends or a community that just hangs out and does a Bible study or anything like that, being able to say, hey, we all are pledging our allegiance to Jesus. He is the ultimate thing. This is a safe place now for you to disagree with us because ultimately we are all under the authority of Jesus. Yeah. And and when it's done well, I think it's so beautiful. Some of the best conversations I've had I've been with people who disagree with me on things, but they love me and they show me that they love me. And I Mm -hmm. leave that conversation, maybe not swayed to like their view of the world or about whatever particular issue, but at least I'm like, man, I gained some perspective today. Like I, I learned from somebody and I, I, I tried to practice that idea of, you know, be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. I think that's really like what we need to model but I think so often we just feel like we have it figured out. And it's like, I, I know everything I believe about the world and no one can tell me anything new or introduce any new ideas to me. And I need to passionately fight against anyone who thinks differently. And I just think, you know, for us as Christians, so often we are viewing people as the enemy. But going to what Paul says, it's like our fight is not against flesh and blood. The way I view it is, you know, when it comes to Christians and non-Christians, people aren't the enemy. They're victims of the true enemy. Like they're prisoners of their own false ideologies. And I'm not talking about like, oh, they need to be more right or more left. I'm talking about the ideology of deception from the enemy, which is, you know, there is no God. And 
we ourselves are all that is, and we just need to solve the world's problems through our own efforts. And, and it's the bondage that then leads to sin and all sorts of other things. So when I see somebody who disagrees with me at a fundamental level about something like, say, abortion, I don't mm. see that person as the enemy. Like, I don't view them as a part of like the abortion agenda. That's a soul. That's a person that is in bondage to their own, what I believe are false ideas about what human life is. And what they really need is not for me to yell at them. It's, that it's for them to be introduced to the living Christ and for the Holy Spirit to actually be able to then come and make a change in that person's. And so, you know, I, I think, I don't know, like, uh, here's an idea that's in my head. This is what I've been thinking of lately. I'd love to throw it at you. And again, mm-hmm. like push back if you're like, <laughs> no, dude, that's not the right way to look at it. Like, I won't All be right. offended. I welcome, you know, discourse. So like the way I kind of view the culture war is there are two sides that are just at least in America, there are two sides that are just violently fighting one another. And for Christians, a lot of times we are we feel like we're being called by our friends and, and teachers and family and whatever to join one of those sides and just fight. Like, get in. Like, we have to win the culture war. We have to fight. So get in there and fight until the death. Because this is, you know, just, it's that's what it is. It's life and death. And I view it more as like, actually, instead of joining the one side or the other, we're actually called to go sit on a hill watch and study the conflict, pray, critique both sides for what they're doing right or wrong. And then like, as people are getting wounded by that fight, we go down to the battlefield, not to fight and kill, but like as medics, like there are souls that are going to get wounded in this culture war. And it's our job to go to people on both sides who have been hurt and say, Hey, let me tell you about the way of Jesus and call them out of that culture war into something that is better. (laughs) That's kind of my view, but I don't know if that's like naive or too simple. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a, I think that's a great view. I would probably add to it that the, especially thinking of in the terms of sitting on a hill, watching the conflict, it's very, I'm thinking of like Rod Dreher, like the Benedict option <laughs> where like we create the, the kingdom culture separated from the culture of the world. And then that allows us to engage the culture in a much more profound way. And I think that's super true and we need to be doing that. And I think there's also a place for those who are also soldiers on both sides who can walk into the middle, sit down, drop their mm. arms and be in the center as the two, the two sides are coming into clash with each other and people who are willing to actually just sit in the middle, take the hits. And that's and good. Yeah. Through that, I think you get to see, it's kind of, you can kind of see it in the, what happened in the civil rights movement where you had sit-ins and nonviolent protests where yeah. what it does is it's actually revealing the evil that's behind it for the first time white americans were able to see black people being just obliterated on the streets being shot with uh Mm. tear gas being shot with fire hoses and Mm. people screaming and spitting in their faces and that Mm. was the first time where some people got to actually see the the true evil in racism and actually see it for what it actually is and there are people who are called to do that whether it's in the social sphere, whether it's in the political sphere, to be able to sit in the middle and know what's about to come and, and take the hit of the of the evil and allow people to see what it actually is. And, yeah. and you see it now, even with, we still are dealing with race relations and now we're able to see it on a much larger scale where, where with the most recent one of Ahmed being, being shot, yeah. people are now seeing what these things are actually doing to our country um, yeah. and to our society. And I think that there are people who need to be able to to even belong to a side or another and and as followers of Jesus move to the center 
before the conflict happens so that people can see what the conflict's actually doing to people. That's that's a really good perspective. And I feel like I feel like sometimes it, it applies to personal calling because the reality is like every single one of us could care and devote our time and attention to so many issues. There are so many issues. And we honestly, as much as we want to care, we can't fully give ourselves to every single issue. And yet for many of us, like there is a personal calling where it's like, man, I feel like I am somebody where I see racial injustice. This is something I'm passionate about. I want to fight this or, you know, the other, the other side, you know, we talked about abortion. There are Christians who feel like, man, I want to make a positive change in this arena. Like, how can I fight this? And I feel like that idea of kind of like starting on the hill and examining and being prayerful and then journeying down to the battlefield, not to like necessarily join one side or the other, but to fight for something that might get you identified with one side or the other. You know, people might Mm -hmm. assume you're on a side because you're speaking up about a certain thing, but really it's like, you're not fighting for the left kingdom or the right kingdom. Your actions are motivated by fighting for the true kingdom, for the kingdom of Christ. And and that does involve activism in some levels. That does involve uh, speaking out on some levels and uh, and fighting for what's right. And it and it I feel like at times it will put you in a place where you will be misjudged and you will be lumped into one category or the, another, despite what's in your heart. But I feel like that's that's worth it. And for every single one of us, we need to ask ourselves, what are we called to? And then whatever you're passionate about, don't ignore the other things out there. Like don't get passionate about one issue. And just ignore that there are other issues. And maybe you're not educated on those issues. Maybe you don't know much about those issues. And and be open-minded to your brothers and sisters in Christ who are passionate about those mm-hmm. things. When I was on staff at our church um, in Calvary Vista, I was very passionate about evangelism. And not every person on staff was as passionate. And that frustrated me at times. And God had to speak to me. And he was like, look, you think they're apathetic, but they have their things that they're passionate about. Like they are fully invested in these other areas of ministry in the church. Don't judge them, like come alongside them and invite them to come alongside you and, and work together. Like not everybody is going to be fired up about what you're fired up about. Cause there are so many problems with our broken world, if that makes sense. You know? Yeah, totally. There definitely is the whole, you just see it a lot on social media and stuff where it's the, like, if you're not doing anything or if you're not angry about these things, you don't care about these things. Um, And I get the sentiment behind it, but I also want to be careful with people who could possibly be on your side. You demonize them before they even have a chance to to even think about it. And, and that's a dangerous game because obviously we don't want to be just apathetic. Um, Yeah. Apathy can also be uh, a source of the problem of, of many of our injustices in the world. It's, but we are finite people. We only yeah. have so much emotional energy to give, so many, so much physical energy to give. And so we need to be careful for demonizing people for not acting on the things that we're passionate about. Yeah. And educating them is great and, and getting them to a place where, where they can form an opinion, but demonizing people for not being as passionate or as active right. as you are in a specific sphere is just as bad as being mad at the other side. Yeah. Yeah, no, one of one of the worst things I've seen on social media has been just like the inability to move past what you care about and give a rip about what anyone else cares about. And I've seen this like, you know, again, I've been speaking as somebody who, you know, when it comes to abortion, like I would agree it's morally wrong. I would love to see things change in society somehow where it becomes where just the collective consciousness of people would agree that this is wrong and we shouldn't be doing this. 
so I believe in that. But then as somebody who is passionate about that, I can I can be honest about the flaws in the movement. And what I see on kind of the Facebook activism is somebody is like, man, an unarmed black man was shot. Like, let's talk about this. This is a problem in society. And then the response is like, well, you think that's bad? Look, look at how many abortion deaths there were this year. Or mm-hmm. like coronavirus. Like, look at all the people who've died. We know it's even worse. Look at all the abortion deaths. It's, it's like this, our school shootings. Like, mm-hmm. let's have a conversation about these kids dying in school. And it's like, well, actually a bajillion more people have died from abortion. And it's just like, that is not helpful. Like, totally. If your response to is, if your response to someone saying there's a fire at my house is to say, well, there's a million fires over in that other town. So why should I care about the fire at your house? It's just not helpful. And it's not Christian, in my opinion. Like, I, yeah. I think that we all need to care about what's going on in the world. And sometimes that means speaking out passionately about our, our thing that God has given us to really be fired up about. But other times it means just gently listening to somebody where maybe you might not even think their problem is a problem, but then as you actually listen and get to know them, you see their humanity and you're not just seeing statistics on a chart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think too, kind of coming back to, yeah, our, our allegiance thing as well. And, and I think, using those arguments of like what you said, where someone's like, oh yeah, look at all these school shootings, but look compared to the number of abortions per day that we, that we see is one of those things. I mean, one, it's logically just inconsistent (laughs) of of a thing to do. Whereas we see like solving all abortions are not going to solve school shootings. Uh, These are different things that require different tactics to help solve. And I think that when we, submit to the way of Jesus, we can have a better and clearer focus on what it is that we're working toward. And that unity of someone who is fighting for abortions can partner with someone who's also fighting for gun reform and also trying to get school shootings to stop. But like, how do we do that? And it's it's like that idea of like a consistent pro-life ethic. Like if we're truly pro-life, we're not, we care about the unborn. We fight for that, but then we fight for other lives. We don't want to see other people die. So if anyone in the world is dying for stupid reasons, like we, we should be concerned about that and asking how can we also help with that issue? I, that's Mm -hmm. my personal. Yeah. Yeah. I would totally agree with that. I think uh, the last question I would ask you would just be, and this is, this has been seriously such a good conversation, man. Thank you so much for for being on here. How do you personally, as a not just as a pastor, but as a Christian, as a human, how do you stay sane in this current cultural moment? Like, how can we fight for unity in a divided? Yeah, I think that that's been the thing that I've been. That's been the biggest struggle for me during Same. this time. Um, I feel like I'm going insane. Yeah, totally. And the difficult part of it is is the isolation aspect of it. Yeah. It's hard to be unified with people when you're sitting in your room steaming with your phone in hand on Instagram <laughs> or, or Facebook, like looking at things. And that is a breeding ground for division and emotional attack and things that are not of the spirit. And so, yeah, what I've been doing and kind of is as much as I love engaging with politics and the news and everything like that, limiting that as much as possible I'd say diversify and limit it. So (laughs) don't follow one source, follow many sources, but also don't be reading them all the time. (laughs) And I think that that helps in not feeling the, the paralyzing fear of 
the chaos that's surrounding us of like, I can't, I don't have control of this. And it's like, you don't have control of it. So stop trying to fix it on your phone. And so that's a big one. I would say having a community in whatever way is possible during Corona and after a community that is open, prayerful and Mm. honest with each other. And Mm. I think that is a breeding ground for the fruit of the spirit. And so the more that you can get into that and it doesn't have to be an organized church thing. If you're struggling to find that in an organized church, being able to create that community within the church uh, is Mm. a beautiful way to change the culture of your church and to create uh, a non-anxious kingdom visioned group of people wherever you are. Mm. That's really good. That's really, really good. I totally agree with that. I, (laughs) I, I resonate with that. And you know, for me, the thing that I would add that's personally been good during this season has been, I tend to feel a lot, if that makes sense. I feel the weight of people's fear and anger and unrest during this time. And I, it, I, that can, that can become a burden on me. I carry that around with me and I'm just thinking about everything that everyone I know posted and said and what, like, just, I can sense their frustration. And so then I get frustrated. So I'm trying to to pray more and post less, which sounds super cliche, you know, but like to, to start with prayer, I've been trying to take walks and just give it to God. And then when I see somebody just lashing out on social media and venting and just kind of going for it, there's a part of me that like wants to confront them and get in the comments and start saying things. Mm -hmm. But what, what I found has been more helpful is just sending a private message and saying, Hey, like, I can see you have some pretty strong views about this. Like, can you share more of those with me? Can you share more of your perspective with me? And then like, maybe can we talk about it and I'll share a few things with you. And those have gone so much better because when it's public, everyone feels the desire to defend their honor, you know, Mm -hmm. through the comments, their, their digital honor. And so it's all, it just turns into a debate. But I've found that like in those private conversations, a lot of times you find the middle ground, the common ground, and you walk away encouraged. And at times, you know, for me, like at a pastoral level, I can walk away and say, okay, I helped that person, you know, think about this a little bit better. There's times where I walk away and I'm like, they helped me think a little bit better, you know, Mm -hmm. like I gained some valuable perspective. And uh, I think that that's important. And I think that that's a big way that we can fight for unity during this divisive time is realizing that like, we're not going to solve the world's problems by that one Facebook post that just changes everybody's mind or that one tweet where everyone's like, now I see I mean, those can be helpful, but personal connections with people like community, personal, actual connections where someone can tell that you love them like that to me, that's going to make the biggest difference. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I think, yeah, the most, some of the most like spiritual Jesus uh, honoring things we can do are the most mundane (laughs) things. Like for the first, I'd say the first two weeks for me, the most spiritual thing I could do was, was like you said, just go on a walk just like yeah. walking around my neighborhood, even if I wasn't like intently praying or, or meditating, just getting moving and like oxygen <laughs> coming into my lungs was, <laughs> was just amazing. And that was, that was really helpful. And yeah, even just it, yeah, it's one of those things that it's not, it doesn't, it's not glorious. It's not sexy or anything like that. It's for me when I'm texting a friend talking about, yeah, when I'm texting a friend and where we are, debating something like the other night I was talking with a friend and we were talking about sheriff orders versus police in the city and like all those differences and everything like that. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And even in those conversations where like there could be tension or anything like that to be able to ask like, Oh, I'd love to hear your opinion and know where you're coming from. 
is something that I maybe don't actually want to do. And it's something that I'd rather just say my little uh, soundbite and then move on. But instead to be like, okay, what do you think? And like, take a deep breath and listen and be able to say, I disagree with that, but thank you for sharing your opinion. Yeah. Like to me, that's exuding the fruit of the spirit. And the more that we can do that is, is I think a beautiful thing, even though it's so mundane mm. and so simple. Amen, man. Fully agree. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for being here. Thanks yeah. for uh, taking the time to talk through this stuff. I feel a lot better. Part of the reason I want to do this episode is I just want to talk to somebody about all these things in my head about this issue. So <laughs> totally, I, it feels good. This was like therapy. So thank That's you. Good. Yeah, same that. here. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. If you like our show, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. It seriously helps so much. The more reviews we get, the more people will find us. And so if you want to help the show, please just go on iTunes and leave a quick review. We also love questions from listeners and we love to do episodes focused on questions. So if you have a question and you want us to talk about on the show, send it to our email address, which is goodlionnetwork at gmail.com. Send us a question. We'd love to talk about it on the show. The Good Lion Podcast is a production of the Calvary Global Network, and it's produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. Our show is a part of the Good Lion Podcast Network, a network of Christian podcasters that Brian and I started with our friends. Check out our website, goodlion.io, where you can find a ton of other Christ-centered, encouraging, and equipping podcasts. Our goal with this ministry is to reach people all over the world with Christ-centered content that helps them as they walk closer with Jesus. If you like what we do and you want to support us, go to goodlion.io slash support. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.